India would be Christians today. Um, now, I'm sure uh, Mahatma Gandhi was uh, exaggerating slightly, but even he recognized that there is incredible power, there's incredible beauty, there is incredible truth in the words of Jesus as found in the Bible. And so starting today and going through the fall and maybe even into early next year, we're going to keep coming back to Luke's gospel. We're going to be in Luke 4 and 5 for these next kind of four or five weeks. And then we're going to take a little pause to look at Moses for a few weeks. And then, believe it or not, in that many, not that many weeks' time, we will go into Advent. Although the slight feels like Advent today with the weather. But we're going to be going into Advent and we'll go back to the beginning of Luke's gospel and then we're going to unpack for quite a while into next year some of the beautiful things that Jesus has to teach us about life, the universe and everything. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to go straight into it this morning. Luke chapter 4, 1 to 13. Luke 4, 1 to 13. And if for any reason you don't have a device or a Bible or something, it'll be up on the screen and Carla's going to read it for us. Okay, Luke 4, 1 through 13 in the NIV. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was very hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answers, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all of their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Okay, let's pray. Uh, Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us this wonderful, beautiful set of instructions and life. And uh, I pray this morning as we get into the words and the actions of Jesus that we would find life, we'd find truth, we'd find hope together. Amen. So uh, last week, if you were around, we were in the book of Acts, which incidentally was also written by the author Luke, and we looked at the beginnings of the early church. We looked at the coming of the Holy Spirit, which spectacularly took this group of very scared people and, and launched them into a place of incredible ministry and fruitfulness and growth. Now, today, we're actually jumping quite back uh, in Luke's writings, back to the beginning of Jesus's ministry. But the really interesting thing is, if you've ever read this before, you will know in Luke chapter 3 that Jesus's ministry actually starts quite similar to how the churches does. When Jesus is baptized, he becomes full of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that comes upon the church. 
Jesus, uh, God's spirit comes upon Jesus, and we, we read God the Father say, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And this kind of marks in both uh, Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, the start of the, the spectacular, amazing ministry of Jesus. But you kind of wonder, like, if Jesus is suddenly in this place being full with the spirit, he's full of authority, he's full of power, he's probably thinking, man, I've got like three, three years to change the universe before, I, before I've got to go back to heaven. Like, I wonder what you think Jesus would do first. I wonder what you would do first if you found yourself in that kind of place? Well, surprisingly, or at least surprisingly to me, the start of Jesus' ministry reads exactly like Carla has just read it for us. Like verse 1 of Luke chapter 4 says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, which is the place of ministry, it's the place that he grew up in, it's the place of the people, and was led by the Spirit, there's the Holy Spirit again, into the wilderness. In fact, not just that he was led into the wilderness, if you read on a few verses further, he was assailed, attacked, tempted by evil. Like, what? <laughs> that is a really strange like, start to Jesus' ministry on earth. Like, what, what is going on? Well, I want to talk to you this morning about words like battle, words like wilderness, words like temptation. And I know that feels a bit heavy, especially when it's a bit cold and gray outside. But if you just stick with me for a few minutes, you'll see why there's some real hope. So I'm going to look at this morning, when is the fight? Where is the fight? And is there any hope in the fight that sometimes we find ourselves? So I think if you were to walk out of the church this morning and you were to wander around the local neighborhood or any local neighborhood, I think you would probably, uh, getting, if you got chatting to someone and you started to say to them, hey, like, what does it mean, what's good and what's bad and what's good and evil and those kind of things, I think you would pretty, pretty quickly find some people uh, to be able to say, and they would say something to you like this, yeah, if you live your best life, like if you have had enough caffeine, or you have slept enough, or you have been on vacation recently and you are living to your highest moral capacity. You're doing your best. You are living at your best. You make no mistakes. You are nice to the people around you. You are good. Then good things will happen to you, right? Good things happen to good people. You don't have to be a Christian to come up with that. Uh, karma it's like a very well-known Eastern uh, kind of thing, isn't it? Like If you are good, good things come about you. And on the flip side of that, we then therefore have this kind of idea that if something bad happens to someone, then we can basically say this, someone screwed up, right? Someone messed it up. Like it might have been you, it might have been me, it might have been somebody else, but some external force screwed the thing up. There must be a reason. There's a cause and effect. Now, we've just obviously come off the back of a series on the book of Proverbs, which is all about how to live well, to live wisely. And as Christians, we want to obviously hold to many of those things to be true. But I also know, and you will too, if you've been a Christian for a while, that it doesn't take that long before you come across some moment in your life when something terrible happens. When something bad happens, when you find yourself in a battle, you find yourself in a place of wilderness that wasn't caused by you at all, but is a something that just happens in the world around you. In fact, what you, you find out is that, in fact, not just that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, but if, before long, you find out that actually bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. There is something else that's going on in, in the world. But it takes a bit of getting used to that idea because, you know, like even in the Bible, Job, who is this amazing character in the Old Testament, is a good person. Good things happen to him until they don't anymore. And bad things, very bad things happen to Job. He loses everything. And in fact, his friends come to see him and they're like, hey, Job, what did you do? 
Like, what did you do? You must have screwed it up in some way. There's that implication that we must mess up things if something bad happens. Except it doesn't work. When Jesus comes to earth, lives the most incredible life, the most beautiful life, the most blameless life that has ever been lived, what do you find? Bad things happen to him. When you think about the early church, bad things happen. And so if you think about being a Christian, and sorry to start here this morning, what you come to the conclusion is pretty soon is that we do live in a battle. When is the battle that we live in? Actually, it's all the time. We live in something of a spiritual battle that is going on. And in fact, the more you love Jesus, the more you seek to see his kingdom lived out on the world, the more you actually become aware of and involved in something bigger that is going on. So, if I haven't depressed you enough yet this morning, if the battle is around us all the time, like where is the front of the battle? What does the battle even look like that we find ourselves in uh, at times? Now, again, I think if you went outside and you asked, you know, secular scientists, something like that, you said, like, you know, what is this whole good and evil thing? Probably, like, uh, they, someone would say something like this. Now, evil bad things can always be boiled down to this. They can be always boiled down to some degree of psychological or sociological conditions or explanations or deprivations, right? If something went wrong, then probably deep back somewhere, something in someone's brain was damaged or something happened to someone which caused them to do really bad things. And that kind of secular view would also tell you, therefore, that to think that there might be some sort of external force, like a little cartoon devil that goes on like one shoulder, right, with a little pointy tail, or like in the angel on the other side, it's just kind of childish, right? It's just, it's overly simplistic to think in those terms. Well, actually, as Christians, we have completely the opposite understanding. Not that we don't believe that, that psychology and, and psychiatry and those things can help us to explain the things that we see around us, but actually, when Paul puts it like this in Ephesians chapter 6, he says this, our struggle, like our battle, is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, it's against the authorities, it's against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, Paul's not talking about, you know, like the local government or, you know, particular people. But what Paul is saying is this, is that although you and I interact like we are this morning in the physical space, right? We taste, we touch, we smell, we have relationships. That in fact, behind everything that is going on here this morning, everything that has gone on throughout your week, there is a whole nother set of realities that are going on. There is a whole spiritual dynamic that is going on which is interplaying with the physical in every space and every time. And that thing is called the kingdoms of darkness and the kingdoms of light. And when you become a Christian, when the Spirit fills you, one of the things that it does is it, it opens your eyes to this whole different reality, the reality of God, the reality of the devil. And in fact, as Christians, what we would say is, it's overly simplistic to think that you can explain everything just with cause and effect because there's something bigger that is going on. There is a front line of a battle that has been raging for thousands and millions of years that is continuing to rage in some form around us and we as Christians actually find ourselves 
in some ways, we actually find ourselves often like right on the very front line. We find ourselves right in the middle of what is going on, that there is evil out there. And if we're honest, if I'm really honest, sometimes there is darkness like in here too. Both of those things are true. So don't get too negative. Don't get too worried. That's okay. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get more cheery as the sermon goes on this morning. But let's just take a minute. Let's look at the passage and work out, like, what is it that darkness can look like? How does this satanic devil-like figure operate? How does he interact with Jesus? So if you've got your Bibles, um, we're going to turn to this passage that we're looking at this morning in Mark chapter 4. And uh, The first thing we notice in these temptations uh, is uh, in verse 3. So Jesus, right, he's been in the wilderness. He's been fasting. He's been praying. Very spiritual, very holy, very fantastic things to do. And at the end of 40 days, Jesus is hungry, right? I mean, let's be honest. Like, when I do one day of fasting, I am extremely hungry by dinner, Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days. And the devil comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, right? Here's, a, here's an idea. You finished your fast, so why don't you just take those rocks, the stones that are all around you in the desert, and why don't you transform them into some bread and you can eat the bread, right? Seems kind of logical, seems kind of sensible. Why, why would you not do that? But Jesus, like, flat out, straight up, refuses to do that. Why does Jesus refuse to do that? Well, if you know something about the life of Jesus, what you come to find out very quickly is this, is that Jesus never, ever uses his power, his authority, his magical abilities, however you want to talk about them, to serve his own needs. He never does. Uh, You know, Jesus, as as far as we know, lived this very simple, actually quite poor life. He probably would have slept under the stars many evenings. But if you read through the Gospels, you will never, ever see a verse like this. One night, Jesus had a, his head on a rock for a pillow, and he thought this was really uncomfortable. And so Jesus turned the rock into a beautiful pillow. Like, oh, Jesus decided he was going to float three inches above the surface of the ground so that he could be comfortable one night. You don't see that. You never once ever see any instance where Jesus uses his abilities to serve his own needs. And in fact, what Jesus does is he quotes scripture at the devil. He says, and he quotes this bit when Moses is speaking to the Israelites. As Jesus did 40 days in the desert, the Israelites did 40 years in the wilderness. And Moses says to them, actually, God humbled you, causing you to hunger, then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. There's this amazing concept that God provides God provides for our needs. We don't have to use our magical, spectacular, spiritual abilities to do that. So then the the devil goes on. He says, okay, right, Jesus, right, let's try something else. Okay, I'm going to give you a vision of all of the kingdoms of the world, right? All the cities, all all the mountains, all the rivers, all like the people. Now, if, Jesus, you will just bow down to me, then I can give it to you. I'll give it you right now. Now, that kind of seems a bit mind-bending. How can the devil give things to God? I mean, yeah, you might need a theology degree to get fully to the bottom of that. But, but what we do find, particularly in this pre-cross time, is that 
the devil is described as the prince of this world. He has some sort of perverse uh, ability to rule things. And he says to Jesus, hey, you've probably got these great plans. You, can do all, you wanna do all this stuff, but actually you don't need to go through the cross. You don't need to go through any of these things. If you just bow down now, take the shortcut, I'll give you everything that you want. And what does Jesus say? No. Like, no way. I will not bow to you. In fact, he quotes scripture again. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Why does Jesus say that? Well, of course, because Jesus didn't come to join the kingdom of darkness. He came to destroy the kingdom of darkness. Jesus did not come to cooperate with evil. He came to call evil out and to deal with the problem of evil. And so then the devil goes the third time. He says, ah, okay, right. Takes Jesus to this huge tower. I don't know how big towers were back then. Probably not quite the Burj Khalifa. But you know, this big high tower. Maybe there were people all the way around. And he says to Jesus, hey, Jesus, what about a celestial bungee jump, right? (laughs) What about you just like throw yourself off this, this massive tower? And he quotes Psalm 91. The angels will catch you. They will not let you die. And what's the implication? Oh, it's really clear. If, if you like, throw yourself off and suddenly you can fly, everyone will know, wow, like you are the one. Like you're the one who can do all these cool things. How quickly will everybody want to put Jesus on a throne if he's floating in midair like some incredible Marvel superhero? And let's be honest, flying is always the best best superhero special ability, right? Always. So how quickly will everyone want to put you on a throne? And Jesus says no. No way. I didn't come to get glory. I didn't come to be famous. I didn't come to live in a palace. I didn't come to rule governments in a physical sense. In fact, I came to die. I came to empty myself of glory. And if you put these three temptations side by side, what you realize quite quickly is that you can set up these two contrasting realities. On one side, you have the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of the devil. And it's like this. All the power, all the authority, everything that I can grab for me, for my needs, for my wants, so that I get what I want, with who I want, when I want it. That's what it means. Whereas the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God, looks the opposite. looks like this. My life poured out for you. My needs, my desires put to one side so that I may bless and serve you. My power, my authority given for your good. You see those two realities, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness. Now, it's easy to paint those realities out in amazing, huge things like, you know, who's going to rule the universe? But they also apply, I think, in every single moment that you and I ever face. Every day, we make choices, right? Every moment, we are deciding, am I going to do this thing for me? Am I going to do it for my glory? Am I going to do it for my fame, for my needs, for my wants? Or am I going to do it for others? And what we find is that all the time, in fact, we are standing on the very front line of the battle of the kingdom of heaven. I read this really interesting article uh, about 
there's a film that came out in 2002. Um, there's a film called Max. I've never seen it, and I don't necessarily even recommend watching it. It's about the early life of Adolf Hitler. And uh, the, the writer wrote these really interesting things. He, he said, this movie is not about Hitler's great crimes. The audience knows all about them already. This movie is about the small sins, his emotional cowardice, his relentless self-pity, his envy, his frustration, the way he collects and nurtures offenses, because those are the sins we can see when we look in the mirror. Hitler, like Osama bin Laden or Saddam Hussein or Milosevic, obliges us by representing an uncomplicated picture of evil. But then he finishes by this, he says, but nobody wakes up one day and slaughters thousands of people. What, what the author realized is that, that every day we make these tiny little choices on the side of good and evil, and if you make enough choices on the side of good, then really good things happen. If you make enough choices on the side of evil, then before you know, you start to build something in your life that is very dark. And we can do that. Man, when I have not had enough sleep, or when I am in a bad place, how easy is it to think, oh, you know what, actually, I am going to really lash out. I'm going to be angry. Or, I just feel a bit lustful, so I'm going to act on that lustful thought. Or, that person did something to me, so I'm going to just nurture this sense of self-pity in my life that I am a victim and I should get even about that. Or, I'm just going to think about me. I'm just going to focus on me. I'm not going to focus on anyone else because it's enough just to care about me. And what we realize is this is the very front between good and evil that exists in our life. Now, don't get me wrong, these can be so tough. You know, when, when does the devil come to Jesus? He comes to Jesus at his lowest. He comes to Jesus at his tiredest. He comes to Jesus at his most hungry. That's when the devil tempts Jesus. That is sometimes when the front comes, when we find ourselves in those places of wilderness. So is there any hope? You're like, oh my goodness, church is so depressing this morning. I went to church and he just talked about the devil for like half an hour and I wanted to go home and sleep. It's like, is there any hope? Yes. <laughs> there is so much hope in the Christian faith. I want to tell you about three reasons why as Christians we don't have to be obsessed by the devil. In fact, do you know, I think I, I, like 90-something percent of the Christians I know have no interest in evil. They have no interest in the devil whatsoever. It doesn't even vaguely get into their minds almost everybody else I know is obsessed by the devil. Right? It seems to me like you can fall into one of those two categories. We're never invited to fall into either of those two categories, but we are invited to know, to be prepared, to understand something of this world. So is there any hope? Well, one, yes. There is hope for this reason. Number firstly, God is a genius. A genius in wilderness and battle. He is genius how many of you know this? How many of you know that God loves you? Like Gary. <laughs> no, no. I know that most of you know that. God really loves you. He loves you incredibly. I met a guy this week. I was down at Union Rescue Mission uh, with Rachel, and we were just talking to some of the guys down there. And I met this guy, and he had been quite a successful business person, and then he'd lost everything. He'd lost his marriage. He'd drunk. He'd to the point he couldn't stand up anymore, he was on cocaine, he had literally nothing, he was left in the gutter. And somehow, I think his ex-wife got him along to Union Rescue Mission and he woke up in this place full of hundreds of other homeless people. 
And he said, at the heart of it, he had this belief deep down that he was completely unloved, that he was completely worthless, that actually he had no value anymore. But he said the thing that changed it for him was that one of the chaplains at Union Rescue Mission came up to him and said this, at what point do you think God stopped loving you? Never. When he realized that God still loved him, actually it gave him the moment to start to rebuild his life. And we met him, Rachel and I, this week because he's now like a high-powered engineer doing seismic measurements and all sorts of stuff around the city of LA. And he has this incredibly joyful story about how God transformed his life. First up, we have to realize that God loves us. But here's something else you also really need to know. How many of you know that God loves you too much to leave you in your brokenness? Right? He leaves you too much, loves you too much to leave you in your pain. When you follow Jesus, he doesn't just say, this is great, head for the couch, I'll see you in heaven. Actually, God starts to work very deeply inside your life. Jesus says it like this in John 15. I am the true vine, my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Whilst every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. When you give your life to Jesus, the invitation that Jesus gives to you is this offer to continue to change you, to grow you, not to turn you into someone that you're not, but to help you be the very person that God always designed you and intended you to be. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen the film Wally. You know that film? Epic. Genius film. Um, if you don't know the film, well, basically human beings kind of trash planet Earth and they all go to live in these spaceships, which are like cruise ships in the sky. And, and before long, this is what they end up looking like. I've got a picture here. This is what they end up looking like. It's not aimed at any in particular person in the room here today. Uh, but that's what they look like. And of course, the implication is that if we live in such a way where we just constantly get what we want all the time, that sooner or later we actually end up looking like we've been in McDonald's very many too much times in the last week, right? And, and it's the same thing in, in our spiritual relations. God's desire for your life is not to continually lead you to the couch so you can have a soda, God has something bigger at work in your life. I mean, if you know anything about the story of some of the world's best sports people, uh, you will know that almost always in their past, there is some story of adversity. There is something that they have had to overcome. They have had to grow some muscles. They have had to learn some abilities. I was, anyone seen the, the, the Netflix documentary called Schumacher that just came out this week? You guys don't care, do you? It's like it's just European for motorsports. Really not very interesting. Okay, it was really good. Watch it. It's on Netflix. Um, but it's about like adversity that, that Michael Schumacher had to overcome. If you, you can find that in the backgrounds of very many of the top elite sports stars. Uh, and it's not just in the backgrounds that you find these places of wilderness and these places of battles, but actually you find them in the foreground too. I, I read this week the training regime of LeBron James probably a little bit more relevant to LA culture, right? And LeBron James has this most insane dietary and exercise regime. It's not just that he went through battles in his past to get to where he is now. It's not just that he goes through battles on the court to throw you know, free throws and three-pointers. Actually, he goes through battles every single day in his small, tiny choices to make sure that he is ready for the battles that he faces. He does it in the way that he sleeps. He does it in the way that he eats. He does it in the way that he exercises all the time. He is doing these things in the places of wilderness, 
in the places of battle to become the person that he can become. God is a specialist in the place of wilderness. In fact, if you came this morning and you are in a place of wilderness right now, you're a place of battle right now, I want to tell you that God can do things in that place where you find yourself that he cannot and will not do in any other place. That God can transform and prune you in beautiful, wonderful ways in the place of wilderness if you will allow him to. And in fact, if you look at the Bible at some of the greatest characters, the most inspirational characters, they went through incredible times of wilderness. Abraham couldn't have children almost his whole life. Moses, on the run, living in a desert. David, hunted. Daniel, in captivity. Jesus, in the wilderness and on the cross. Paul, in prison. Now, some of those people messed up. Some of those people found themselves in wilderness because of things that they did. Some absolutely did not do. But here's the thing that was true of every single one of them is that God used wilderness in their life, a battle in their life to grow something beautiful, something absolutely fantastic. Now, I want to be really clear about this. If you're in wilderness, it isn't necessarily that God put you there. I'm not here to tell you this morning that if you are here with cancer or watching online with cancer, that God caused cancer in your life. I'm not here to tell you that God caused the abuse that you have have faced in your past. I'm not here to tell you those things, but I am here to tell you this, is that God will use everything you've been for and he will redeem it for good. That's the promise of Romans, that God is at work in everything, in every situation, in every place for your good. That's what he wants to do. Um, I haven't told that many people this, but um, I was, I think I was 16, uh, maybe 17, when some lovely lady in the church that I was part of came up to me one morning after church and said, Ben, I, I have a picture of you as a senior pastor of a church. Now, like 99% of me in that moment freaked out. <laughs> I was like, that is not something I dream about. The other 1% actually knew she was right. I actually knew she was onto something. And so secretly, I assumed at the age of like being a teenager that what God was going to do was he was going to smooth this amazing pathway that by the age of 21, I would be a senior pastor of a megachurch. <laughs> I wouldn't have to go to seminary. I wouldn't have to do any of the, 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 the life learnings along the way. I assumed it was all just going to work out like that. If I'm honest, and Laura will tell you the same story, the last 20 years of our life has been more wilderness and it has been more battle than it has been plain sailing. It has been more wrestling in situations which we didn't expect to be in, in complexity and pandemic and moving internationally and trying to figure out life and working in places of conflict and trying to work out what God is doing and how he is working. And yet, as I was thinking about this week, I thought, do you know what? I still know nothing (laughs) 20 years on. Maybe I need a whole bunch more wilderness to get ready for what God is calling me to in my life. Now, I'm not suggesting that you go hunting down wilderness in your life, but as I look at my life, I realize that wilderness has been so helpful. It has been so good because God has used it to build something really beautiful in it. And God's promise to you is that he will be with you. Psalm 23 says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil because you are with me. That's the problem. So that's the, the promise. So Jesus is, is a genius at working in wilderness. The second thing you need to know is this, is that actually Jesus, Jesus is actually our example and triumph in wilderness. It says in verse 13, and same story in Matthew 4, then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. 
Jesus gives us, and that's exactly why we're doing this this fall, the most beautiful example about how to live in times of wilderness. And just one quick little point, just so you can take one thing away today, is what does Jesus do in times of wilderness? He quotes the scriptures. He quotes the scriptures consistently. Um, I have a friend, and she said to me one day, you know, Ben, once upon a time, I invited Prince Charles to come to my house for tea. Um, If you don't know who Prince Charles is, he's the guy who will one day be the King of England in about another 50 years when the Queen finally dies. (laughs) Something something like, he's got huge ears, and you see him on the crown. Um, He's kind of first in line to the throne in England. And uh, my friend invited him for dinner uh, once, and he came to dinner. And they had this really interesting conversation about God. And I think Prince Charles has this very complicated faith nowadays. Um, But Prince Charles said to my friend, he said, the funniest thing happens to me that when I am in places of conflict, the Bible just starts to come out of my mouth all the time. It just comes out. And what my friend found out is that Prince Charles grew up you know, going to chapel. He grew up studying the Bible. He grew up like being taught and believing and memorizing scripture so that now when he finds himself in these places of huge turmoil and conflict and world leaders and things, it's the Bible that starts to come out of him. And that is really good. <laughs> that is really good. It's the same with Jesus. When Jesus in these places of great temptation, what comes out of his mouth is not his own words. It's the words of God through scripture. In that passage in Ephesians 6, when, when Paul says, right, he says, you've, you need to put on the full armor of God for the battle you're in. And he names one offensive thing that we get as Christians. Everything else is defensive, like shields and you know, breastplates and belts, right? But he names one offensive thing, the sword. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's what we are given. The Bible is the very offensive tool that we have in battle. So we have an example in Jesus. We have his life, we have his story, we have it all mapped out and it's given to us so that we can stand in place of battle. And here's the final thing that you need to know. That Jesus is already victorious in your battle. The battle is actually already won. He is your substitute in the battle. The devil says to Jesus, hey, don't go to the cross. Don't worry about that kind of mess. Just bow down and be in my kingdom. You can have all the power and authority. What does Jesus say to the devil? Absolutely not. I came to empty myself of my glory and to die so that I might conquer you, so I might conquer darkness, so that I might defeat this reality. Now, of course, we still see evil around us all the time. We're still in the final parts of the battle, but here's what you need to know. The battle only ever actually will have one eternal outcome. It's already done. When you give your life to Jesus, what you're actually doing is you're recognizing that you can't defeat evil on your own, that you can't be good enough on your own, that in fact what you're recognizing is that it is Jesus who lived the life that you could not live, and he died the death that you should have died, and he took your sins, and he took your darkness, and he took all the evil that plagues you so that you might join into the kingdom of God and be on the winning side of all of history. If you're not a Christian this morning, and actually this is from the prayer team this morning, they actually said that there's somebody here who's not accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, but today he's calling you and wants you to know there's a place for you at the wedding feast. Uh, I want to tell you this morning, don't mess around. Like, don't mess around with sin and darkness and evil. Don't think that you can work it out on your own. You can't. When you become a Christian, you find that you have, you are, have won the battle 
because Jesus has won it for you. He passed the test so that you could fail it and that you can find hope and life. Jesus has tapped in for you. And that is the ultimate truth that I'd love you to go for this morning. If you find yourself in wilderness, if you find yourself in battle, then the promise is that one day you will look back from heaven, from eternity, and you will say, that was a blip, that was a little unpleasant, that was wilderness, that was hard, and that was difficult, but it is nothing compared to the all-surpassing, all-conquering, eternal victory that it means to live in eternity with Jesus. That is the hope that we have in Jesus. And so I, wanna, I just want to say to you this morning, you know, please, if you have not ever given your life to Jesus, please, please do, because it is the only way that you will have hope in the battles that you face in your life now and for eternity. Um, but I hope that is of a comfort. I hope it is of hope. I hope it is a blessing to you this morning. So would you pray with me?